0: Hi, I'm Ollie Neal, and you're listening to the EQUIP Project podcast. The EQUIP Project is designed to help young people engage with the Christian faith in a thoughtful and reasonable way. Our goal is to help provide clarity and understanding as we seek to tackle many of the cultural and intellectual challenges to Christianity. I'm the Youth and Young Adults Worker here at Crescent Church in Belfast, and I'm sitting alongside Jim Crooks. Jim, you're not quite wide awake this morning, are you? No, I, I, I'm a little sleep-deprived. I went to bed last night with this vague feeling of
1: unease. I don't know if that's ever happened to you, um, and I'd forgotten to do something. And about 20 minutes later, I sat bolt upright in the bed because I, I remembered I have a speaking engagement tonight. So, I had to set the alarm for 6 (laughs) a.m. It wasn't easy to roll out from under the duvet at that appallingly early hour. So, there were lots of groaning involved.
0: Oh, no. Tell me about it. Like, we're, Rachel, my wife, and I are attempting to go to early morning gym classes. And on these mornings when it's dark and cold and icy, it's just honestly like it's like a nightmare waking up to that reality.
1: Yeah, well, the weather's the least of the reasons why I wouldn't go to a gym. (laughs) Hopefully this coffee will help warm me up.
0: (laughs) Anyway, why don't you set the scene for this episode while I get my brain in gear? Yeah, so in this episode, we're going to talk about doubt. And it's pretty common for young adults to have doubts about their faith. Sometimes we ask ourselves, is all this Christianity stuff actually true? Are my non-Christian friends right when they say that I believe because of my upbringing or that my beliefs are in fact just coping mechanisms? Or maybe we sometimes wonder if we're really a true Christian at all. And these topics, I think, are uncomfortable to talk about, Jim, because many Christians tend to leave their doubts in the back of their minds and not really ever surface them. Why, Why is that, do you think? I think we can actually feel pretty guilty about doubting at all. Um, it can almost feel like a sin to doubt. I also think that um, there's a fear factor there, Jim, because actually, if we bring some of those things to the surface, we have to, we have to face them, face up to them for ourselves, and that's a scary thing sometimes. I think both those reasons are, are valid, uh, and I
1: guess the best place to start is to say that doubt is not the same thing as unbelief. Doubt is not the opposite of faith. So we shouldn't feel guilty that our doubts have been produced by some sort of sin, you know, by the sin of unbelief. Doubt's not the opposite of faith. Doubt is a lack of certainty. And in that sense, because we're finite creatures, doubt is an inevitable part of the human condition.
0: I always find it helpful to remember that some of the most respected characters in the Bible had doubts. So Job, for example, is rightly held up as an example of faith. But in the course of his suffering, it seemed like Job was critical. Of God, or or if you think about the Psalmist, if you think of David, sometimes David almost seems to call out God, and it's quite uncomfortable language he uses, um accusing God of being disloyal to him almost. Perhaps the best known example comes from the life of John the Baptist, and John, at one point in his life, says, "Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world." And it's this kind of triumphant declaration of who Jesus is. But then later on in his life, when he's in a prison cell and he's confused and he's uncertain about God's strategy, he sends these two messengers to ask Jesus if, in fact, he is the Messiah. And the interesting thing about that incident is that
1: Jesus calmly answers John's doubts. He gives reasoned arguments and evidence. He doesn't get angry with John or rebuke him for doubting. In fact, he calls John the greatest man ever born. So never allow a sense of guilt to stop you from surfacing doubts. The first step to healing is to overcome the, the fear of surfacing them and face them head on.
0: Yeah, so, so when these doubts start to rise up in our minds, we discover they come in all sorts of shapes and sizes. How would you go about structuring the thing we call doubt, Jim? Gary Habermas uh, would, would helpfully
1: say that there are three main types of doubt Remember, a human person is made up of mind, emotion, and will. So we have three types of doubt which align with our threefold nature. There is factual doubt, emotional doubt, and doubt of the will. Uh, So let me explain what that means, and I'm going to do that by reverting to the moment uh, when my alarm went off at 6 (laughs) a.m. this morning. Okay, so all three parts of me addressed the question of getting out of bed. I thought about it, I had feelings about it, and I made some choices about it. Thinking, feeling, choosing. Okay, mind, emotion, and will. So, uh, my mental faculties considered the pros and cons of getting out of bed. I had agreed months ago to speak at this event, I just couldn't wing it, so I needed to prepare. So it was reasonable that I got up and sat in front of my computer. But then my emotions also spoke to me. On a cold, wet Monday morning, I might feel the desire to remain snug in a warm bed. But as a child, I can remember waking up on Christmas morning and almost bursting with excitement because I so wanted to jump out of bed. So that's the emotional side. But mind and emotions aren't enough. It isn't enough to think and to feel. I have to choose. So it is my will that causes me to pull the duvet away, swing my feet onto the carpet, and get out of bed. So I think, I feel, and I choose. Now, doubt can arise in any of those three departments of life. Factual doubts rise up in my mind. You know, so uh, did I solve that miles assignment correctly or not? Emotional doubts come in the form of anxiety or paranoia. Do I feel as much in love with her as I did last week? And then doubt of the will is a struggle over what to choose. Do I really have to slow down because of a stupid 30 mile per hour sign? Must I obey the law? What if I just couldn't be bothered?
0: Let's deal with each type of doubt in turn then. First, you've talked about factual doubt. And I guess the big questions that arise here are things like, is there a God? Do I seriously believe that this carpenter from Nazareth was God become a man? Did he really rise from the dead? Do I seriously believe that this book, the Bible, is reliable and that it's the inspired word of God? Yes. Factual doubt is doubt about the objective claims of Christianity.
1: Uh, When we experience factual doubt, our minds question the reasonableness of Christian beliefs. So, maybe you watch Bart Ehrman argue that Colossians and Ephesians are forgeries, or you hear a lecturer pour scorn on the idea of the atonement, and you start to
0: wonder if your faith is irrational or silly. You call the second type of doubt emotional doubt. What do you mean by that term, Jim? Well, I'm sure you have met Christians who say things like
1: this, Sometimes I don't feel as if I'm really saved. Or they'll say, uh, my feelings for God aren't as strong as they were last year. Now, the root cause uh, for emotional doubt uh, relates to the type of personality that we have. You see, there are some people who seem to sail through life without a care in the world. But not all of us are like that. Some of us are prone to anxiety or gloomy sadness or even paranoia. And that's because sin has affected each of us differently. The fault lines running through our personalities are unique. So some of us will be tortured with anxiety, while others not are not. Perhaps people uh, who suffer from emotional doubt ask themselves, what if Christianity is all wrong? But they don't have any specific reasons for
0: doubting the claims of Christianity. It's an emotional state. Doubt like that is a real problem for people with obsessive personalities, Jim. Or even anxiety disorders like OCD, for example. Doubt can be particularly crippling for people like that, and it takes over their minds and it disrupts their daily life. I remember in my teenage years constantly questioning whether I was really a Christian or not. Did I really believe all this stuff? And if I did, had I believed it in the right way? And if I sinned, if I failed to live up to to God's standards in one way or another, I'd be filled with this sense of anxiety and a fear that I was never really a Christian in the first place, at all and, and as a result I was constantly checking myself. I was testing myself to see if this faith I claimed to have was actually genuine. Was I just trying to act like a Christian or was I genuinely a Christian? I
1: know a number of young adults who who could really identify with that description. They struggle to have complete confidence in anything really. They'll read the Bible and be constantly questioning, is this true? Can this be real? Is God really good? Can I trust this? Is the evidence compelling enough? Or do I just believe this because I want it to be true or because it is objectively true? And these hundreds of thoughts and questions can race through the obsessive mind and it can be really very draining. People with OCD also hyper-analyse their thought life, questioning the authenticity of their faith if they think unkind thoughts or sinful thoughts. We can spend so much time examining our motives. Why did I say this or that? Does this mean I'm not really a Christian at all? If I was a Christian, surely
0: I wouldn't have done that or said that or or watched Yeah, Jim. I I think the longing of the obsessive Christian is actually certainty. It's rest. It's a desire to have no more churning, just a peace of mind and heart. And ironically, the obsessive thinking is itself a quest to find that rest and to reach that point of certainty. Yet often, it has the very opposite effect, and and instead it traps the person in a cycle of anxiety-inducing doubt. The final category of doubt isn't about our minds or our emotions. It lives in the realm of the will. We all think with our minds, we feel with our emotions, but we choose with our wills. So what do you mean by the term you use, doubt of the will? Doubt of the will is best understood
1: as a struggle between God's will and my own will. Um, Let me give you an example. Suppose you were at a, a dinner party and you find yourself seated beside a married couple. And the husband criticises his wife continually throughout the meal. He mocks her dress. He corrects her grammar. He openly flirts with another woman at the table. Now, is the problem here that the man no longer thinks he's married? Or is the problem that he no longer feels as if he is in love with his wife? No, it's neither of those things. The problem is that the husband has chosen to be disloyal to his wife. He has made a choice. The bickering, the little insults, the flirting... Those are all symptoms of an internal choice that the man has made some time earlier. He just couldn't be bothered with being loyal or even with behaving as a married man. So the state of mind here is calloused, cold and sullen. It's a decision of the will to give up. And doubt of the will is a bit like that. Christians can become uh, self-sufficient. Their trust in God becomes less and less important in their lives. Uh, It gathers dust in their lives. Instead of growing and developing, Faith can sit like a forgotten toy in a child's nursery. And Christians in that sort of spiritual state can find an increasing struggle between their own will and God's will as revealed in the Bible. So this type of uncertainty towards God is actually produced by a root of arrogance towards him. I don't need him. I just want to get on with my own life. I know the relationship is in trouble, but I just couldn't be bothered to do anything about it. Now, of course, we're all too sophisticated to come out and admit to anything like that. So in these cases, we lie to ourselves. We direct our doubt not to God, but to God's word or to the Lord's church. It's interesting, Ollie, you know, I have seen a good number of theology students walk away from their evangelical convictions. But the curious thing is that the root problem has never been factual doubt or even emotional doubt. Nearly always in my experience, the root problem has been a doubt over who is in charge. Does the Bible have authority
0: over my life? Behind that question is the real one. Do I get to do what I want or what God wants? That's really helpful Jim let's let's move on now to think about some strategies for dealing with doubt. So firstly, how should we handle factual doubt? What do we do when our minds start to question the reasonableness of our Christian beliefs?: Apologies you caught me in a mid drink <laughs> of, of a cup of coffee.
1: The Christian author Olginus once said, "Faith does not feed on thin air, but on fact. It's instinct is to root itself in truth, to earth itself in reality, and it is this which distinguishes faith from fantasy, the object of faith from a figment of imagination. He goes on to say, Factual doubt is silenced by facts. It's answered by truth and reassured by understanding. Truth is the only sufficient answer faith can give doubt, for it is the truth of the matter, the facts of the case, which give faith its solid foundation. I love that quote, so (laughs) unambiguous. You see, if somebody is doubting the resurrection, it is irrelevant to assure him of Christ's promise to never leave him or forsake him. What he needs to investigate are the facts of the matter to ascertain whether or not the story of the resurrection is actually true. The promise of Jesus that he will never leave me nor forsake me cannot po- possibly hold if he is in fact dead. So, what's the point? Investigate the truth. Now, there's no place for sloth there. You'll need to read books. Worse, you'll need to think hard about reasoned arguments. But you can't hope to deal with factual doubts by compartmentalizing your life to have, as it were, a church head and a a work head. That just makes you a double-minded man, to quote the Apostle James. So watch John Lennox and Tim Keller on YouTube, read C.S. Lewis and John
0: Stott and Paul Copan. Investigate the truth. I think that's absolutely massive, Jim, because I think one of the most classic responses to doubt is just to remain stagnant, just to, to not do anything. And ultimately, that ends up in a really negative cycle, um, and you end up just becoming increasingly fixed in that same position. So I think actually doing something, actually going out and doing something um, and investigating some of these things is is crucial.
1: Yeah, there's a threefold step, isn't there, with factual doubt. Surface the doubt, analyze it, and then replace it with truth. So how should we deal with emotional doubt? Well, it seems to me that emotional doubt should be regarded as just one aspect of our overall emotional lives that need to be healed. The answer here isn't to read loads of apologetic books or theological books. That's because the problem isn't really about arguments over the objective claims to knowledge. The problem here is subjective. The lies we must uncover are not in the outside world. The lies here are lies about ourselves. We feel that the world is desolate and pointless. We don't feel loved or safe. And those feelings come about because we have a wrong view of ourselves. So the strategy for emotional doubt is to see it in the wider context of a journey to emotional health. I mean, the big questions here are, how can I learn to trust and how do I
0: learn that I'm loved? In our two episodes on the search for identity, we talked a bit about personality traits and how they affect us. If you haven't listened to those, uh, it would be great if if you'd go back and, and have a listen, because I think they really tie into this discussion. And during those episodes, you used the analogy of your first car, which had a load of problems. It was a wonderful machine. <laughs> but having to drive that car, you said, made you a better driver today. And I've been in the car with you, Jim, and I felt very safe. <laughs> um, so I can, I can confirm that you are, you're a good driver. Um, but if I understood you correctly, you were saying that God can use the fault lines running through our personalities to develop character And capacities that will be needed in the next life and i think that's a really helpful point but is there no possibility of healing in this life
1: yes my ridiculous car analogy uh, does give us hope and that's a really important thing to have in this context hope that um, god is using the struggles we have in our emotional lives uh, to develop capacities and character for the next life but there's also hope for this life Uh, paul talks about the renewing of our minds Uh, He talks about that in in Romans chapter 12. And that is the context in which we can learn to trust. You'll remember, he says, in view of God's mercy, uh, we should offer our bodies as living sacrifices. And it is that offering as a living sacrifice which um, leads to the renewing of the mind. And that phrase is a very curious one, isn't it? It reminds me of the story of Isaac. See, Isaac had been at hundreds of sacrifices, and they probably hadn't had much of a transforming effect on his mind. But then, this time, he's actually on the altar himself. This is his real life. He's not singing choruses about trust and obey, for there's no other way. He saw and felt the implications of trusting God in his real life. And it is that process which generated uh, changes to his mind. So we learn to trust by exercising faith in God in the small things of life. And then, over time, uh, that builds genuine faith uh, into our lives. So that's the first thing. The healing process, which may take decades, begins when we learn to trust. But of course, that's not the only thing. We have to learn how to love and how to be loved. And that leads me to the Apostle John. I I sometimes wonder if the Apostle John had a a compulsive form of anxiety. (laughs) It's a wildly speculative thing to say. But you and I have talked in the past, Ollie, about his first epistle. It has a great deal to say about assurance. And John forensically examines the possibility of self-deception, that he's deceiving himself. And in many ways, his conclusion is found in that really famous phrase, perfect love drives out fear. I'm just reflecting on the, the phrase uh, and, and you mentioned earlier uh, about people with compulsive behavior needing to find rest. Now, the rest that you mentioned isn't found in reasoned arguments. It's found in a person. And John once rested his head on Jesus' chest, and he found rest in a person. He never refers to himself as John. He always refers to himself as a disciple whom Jesus loved. So we can learn that we are loved. Over years of listening to good Bible teaching, we can undo the lies that our minds tell us about ourselves and the lies it tells us about God, that he isn't harsh and he won't abandon us. And over time, the perfect love of Christ will drive out fear and anxiety from the troubled soul. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives as he pours the love of God into our hearts, building first-person subjective knowledge of God's love into our experience. There's no shortcut here, I'm afraid. So make sure you find Bible teachers who portray the right conception of God in their messages. Make sure you listen to Bible teachers who make Scripture come alive, who reveal the moral beauty of God's character and who calls your heart to worship. So I suppose my first thing was to learn to trust. My second was to learn that you're loved by God. But the third is actually to love. A big argument in First John again, uh, when he says we abide in God's love as we love others. And there is no doubt about it that one of the best ways to escape from a prison house of internal paranoia uh, or even depression is to get into the habit of learning to love others, to engage and invest in their lives. Uh, And so those are the three things I would say. Learn to trust, learn that you're loved, and learn to love.
0: Brilliant, Jim. That's really helpful. And and for people trapped in, in a place of emotional doubt, hopefully those three points will be of great value. Finally, let's think about the strategy for doubt of the will. And that's the struggle between God's will and my will. The doubt over who really is in charge. How should someone respond to this kind of doubt, Jim?
1: Well, I think the strategy here is to develop a grown-up understanding of who God is. Now, when I was a bit younger than you, I possessed an infantile, formulaic understanding of Christianity. You know, that sort of sentimental, childish repetition of the old, old story. Now, if my understanding of God hadn't deepened over the years, I wouldn't be a professing Christian today. But I sat at the feet of great Bible teachers. I listened to their preaching, and it was like walking into a magnificent cathedral. And for the first time, I was shown the sheer moral grandeur of Christ. I saw the magnificence of God's character. But if that doesn't happen, if that process doesn't develop, then doubt of the will is a possibility. And doubt of the will is a terrible state to get into. It's very difficult to escape from it. So, the key trick, obviously, is to avoid falling into it in the first place. And the way to avoid doubt of the will is to feed your soul. Now, for those who have fallen into this particular pit, the only escape is a deep, sincere repentance. Have the intellectual honesty to realise that the doubts you say you're struggling with, they're just sand thrown in the eyes of others to hide wilful sin. I remember sitting in a car for hours, uh, there were four people in the car, three of us were trying to persuade one of our friends not to jettison her Christian profession, and we dealt with each of her objections uh, rationally and graciously, but there was just no end to the, the her doubts, a random stream of objections kept flowing, there was no coherence or even much sincerity to her professions of doubt, no interest in finding any answers. And it became clear that she was just searching for a fig leaf, a sort of intellectual air cover for a decision that she had already taken. She didn't want Christianity to be true. Her problem wasn't intellectual or emotional. Her problem was a sullen, rebellious will. And about four o'clock in the morning, we said our goodbyes. There were tears. But I had seen that most ugly thing, doubt of the will.
0: That's a a very sullen note to end on, Jim. Yeah, but it's really important that we stress here that doubt of the
1: will is not the same thing as emotional doubt. In fact, as a general rule, if you're anxious that you're not a Christian, it almost certainly means that you are one. But the important takeaway from this episode is that doubt is not the same thing as unbelief. Factual doubt is neutralized by facts. Emotional doubt is healed by perfect love. And doubt of the will is only escaped from by sincere, heart-level repentance.
0: Thanks, Jim. And thank you to all of you who have listened to this episode. If you have any questions off the back of this episode, we'd love you to ask them. Do follow up via our email address, which is theequippedproject.gmail.com or reach out to us via Instagram. We'd love to continue this conversation and we'd love to respond to any questions in, in future episodes.